tonight as we uh, take on 2 Samuel 19, as we are making our way to the end, Absalom is dead. David has found out, and if you remember from last week, he is not just weeping, but he is weeping and shaking. Remember that definition of deeply moved from last week? It was tremble, quake, rage, or quiver. And now the men are coming back from uh, defeating the enemies of the king. And David, if you look back, last verse of chapter 18, went up to the chamber, keyword, over the gate that the men are going to walk under and wept. And as he went, he said, thus, oh, my son Absalom, and we're going to see this over and over again, my son, my son Absalom, if only, and by the way, totally selfish on his part. It is. I mean, this guy was trying to kill him and his men. If only I had died in your place, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is where we are in this made for Hollywood production. So David wasn't perfect. But as Joab comes and speaks into his life, man, he snaps right out of it. You know, and that's why, you know, look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. If someone is overtaken into sin, you are spiritual, you go to them the same way you want someone to come to, come to you and snap out of it. Look at verse 1. And Joab was told, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. You're the general that just defeated the army, and your king is weeping over the enemies that you just defeated? That's the setting. Step into, be a soldier. You can be one of the mighty men if you want. You can't be a Dino, because I'm going to be him. He's the one that kills 800 guys in one shot. You're going to have to go find somebody else. You can be Joab. You can be Abishai's brother. So when Joab was told that the king was weeping, it's, look what it says. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. Can you imagine? For the, for the people, I mean, that, that's kind of like how it is you know, here when, you know, people that are against wars and stuff, you know, it's like, oh, you know, that. For the people heard it said that day that the king is grieved for his son. But see, the king is what's producing this. Remember in this group is his 400 men who became 600 men who came to David when he was on the run from Saul? Remember how messed up those men were when they came? But now, towards the end of David's life, these men have been with David. They've walked with David. They've experienced David's God. And then out of that same group, David's 37 mighty men, all walking back from the battlefield through the gates with their head hung low like they just lost the game. Look how verse 3 puts it. And the people stole back into the city, his warriors, that day as people who were ashamed steal away when they flee in a battle. I mean, they won, but they're coming back as deserters, cowards, retreaters, even though they had won. I can guarantee you many of these men had never backed down from a fight in their life. I did one time. I was a sophomore in high school. I went out and got a heavy bag, and I never backed down again. Matter of fact, I happened to meet the kid on a job site. He wasn't that big of a bully anymore. Nobody wants to back down. And yet here comes David's men, warriors, men who could take on 800 people at a time and take them all down, and they're walking through the gates as a coward. 
David is just wrong here. And this is such a clear picture where our feelings, feelings, <laughs> there's nothing more. This is where it gets us in trouble so many times. Listen to this, and it's a rough Spurgeon quote, but it's true. If your dear ones are dead, you cannot restore them to life by your unbelief. What? Yeah, because they're in heaven rejoicing. If your dear ones are dead, you cannot restore them to life by your unbelief. And if they still survive, it will be a pity to the down to be downcast and unbelieving when there is no occasion for it. Your strength is to sit still. Remember you, that you are a Christian, and a Christian is expected to be more self-possessed than those, than those who have no God to fly to. We should be stable. That's, that's not what's happening with the king here. But the king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom. So you could hear this thing from a long ways away, and you know, you're getting closer, and then you're starting to hear it, and words working its way back through the thousands. Hey, the king's weeping over what? That can't be true. And as you get closer, you're hearing it. And this he's doing it here. Ab oh, my son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king, rightly so, I add, and said, Today you have disgraced all of your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and your daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, and that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants, for today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, that it would have pleased you and it would have pleased you well. And that's how David is acting, selfish and self-centered. Now, therefore, Joab says to him, Arise and go out and speak comfort to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out. Remember, these are warriors. If you don't go out, not one will stay with you through this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. And think of everything David's went through. Hassled by his older brothers, you know, killing the bear and the lion, taking down Goliath, running from King Saul's spear, on the run to save his life. And yet here he is here. Faithful are the wounds of a friend who tells you the truth. Rather than the kisses of an enemy that are deceitful as they stab you in the back. You know, I always wonder if Joab was going to lead a rebellion at this point if David did not change his actions. Obviously, Joab's saying, look, if you don't do something... People are going to leave. I'd imagine Joab would have left with him. And he was a warrior. And this warrior, the commander, had a pulse for David's men. And look, it was, it were, I mean, guys have spoken words into my life and boom, you snap right out of it. You got to be open to that. And look what it happens. The king arose, not seeking to live by his feelings any longer. As a faithful friend rebukes the king and he goes out and sat in the gate. And they told all the people, saying, there is the king sitting in the gate. Remember it said all the people went back into the houses. So all the people came before the king. They're starting to come back out. And every one of Israel had fled to his tent. Very sad. Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel. You know, these are the losers. Saying, the king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he was... 
He has fled from the land because of Absalom. That's what the upper tribes of Israel, the 10 tribes, the northern tribes are saying. David didn't flee. He's close by. He's still in the land. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, has died in battle. You know why? Because they picked a Hollywood loser <laughs> over God's man. Remember, they picked him. He was good looking, better than everybody else, more handsome, more politically correct, just a real GQ kind of a guy. Yeah, they anointed him because they anointed a loser. And the only reason that they're here right now is because their plan didn't work out. And so here they come. Now they want God's plan because their plan didn't work out. We can be in those places, right? We try our plan and all of a sudden it doesn't work. It's like, ah, I think I'll go back to God's plan. <laughs> well, that's what's happening here. They picked the loser. They got defeated. So now they're coming back. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? So King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priests saying, speak to the elders of Judah saying, why are you the last? Because, you know, David hung out down in Jerusalem. Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house since the words of all of Israel have come to the king to his very house? You're my brethren. In other words, what David's doing here is he's patiently waiting for everybody to get on the same team, all 12 tribes. And he, so he says to Judah, you're my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? And Seda Amasa, remember him? Who was Amasa? He was the loser general for Absalom. Absalom picked Amasa to be his general. Well, uh, they lost. And Seda Amasa, and I think what David's trying to do here, he's kind of trying to show some goodwill. It's like, hey, look, Seda Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God's do so to me and more also if you're not the commander of the army before me continually in a place of Joab. So David's trying to build some bridges here with the 10 tribes that were fighting against him by saying, look, I will take your general and he can be the commander of my army. Now, you have to go, well, that sounds cool, but what does Joab think about that? <laughs> Joab's getting a demotion. Yeah, he don't deal with that, do well with that. Now, David is saying Joab is out. There's probably many reasons why, but mainly because he's seeking to reconcile the country. But doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense to me, and, 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 and that's why I'm not the president having to make tough calls. We can all sit here and tailgate and go, ah, why'd you do that? It doesn't matter who's in office. Why'd you do that? Hey, you wouldn't want to make this call. You know, with somebody, you know, I don't want to make those calls. So he, Zodak and Abiathar, swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, verse 14, just as the heart of one man. So they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. And the king returned and came to the Jordan I add, because everyone wanted him back. David was never into forcing his thing. And Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. So it's kind of a welcoming home party is going to take place here. But look at who comes out to greet the king. Verse 16, and Shimei, remember him? The son of Gera, Benjamite, keep track of that, who was from Barum, hastened and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Remember Shimei? He's the guy throwing the stones and cursing at David and throwing air, dust up in there like pig pen at Charlie Brown. And, he, and, and, and he's now saying, he's coming down to meet the king. What would you say? 
Well, the question becomes, what will the man after God's own heart say? Because that's what we got to say. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him. Okay, remember, he's of a tribe of Benjamin. So he's got a thousand of his own uh, warriors with him. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, you know, that's Benjamin as well, and his 15 sons and his 20 servants with him. And they went over the Jordan before the king. So Shimei brought with him a thousand men of Benjamin, I guess, to show David how loyal he's going to be. And he brings with him, from my opinion, a snake named Ziba, whose name means statue. Oh, don't we know someone else who has a Benjamin who built a statue? <laughs> Saul did. Verse 18. Then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought was good. Now, there's, there are some great lessons we can learn from someone who really messed up. You messed up. The Bible says you need to repent and seek forgiveness. A lot of times people don't even know what repent is. I'll tell you what it's not. It's not crying and then just continuing on your way. But but his approach to life, as, as he really fully surrenders and repents here, look, we can learn from this. Now, Shimei, the son of Gera, remember the guy that was cursing David, throwing rocks, and fell down before the king when he had come across the Jordan. So he's showing an extreme sign of humility here. He's acknowledging David's rule. Then he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. I mean, he's literally emptying himself of himself, and he's pleading for mercy from the one who's in charge, from the one who has authority, or from the one he has wronged. For I, your servant, I know that I have sinned, as he takes complete ownership of his sin. He's not blaming somebody else. That seems to be the easy thing. Well, you know, I, yeah, I did it, but no, none of that. This is like the same thing the man after God's own heart did. I have sinned against God. That's what he's doing here. For you, I, I know I've sinned as he takes complete ownership. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my Lord, the king, as he puts his repentance into gear here by some actions. If my repentance is real, there has to be some actions that are godly. So humility, pleading for mercy, owning your sin, and now doing something about it is a great picture of what we read in the New Testament where Jesus uses the word repent 20 times out of the 24 verses in the New Testament. It's a great picture here. Remember, Old Testament pictures is the New Testament theology. We read about the theology in the New Testament. We can see it being played out in the Old Testament. This is a great look of what repentance looks like. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? At first glance, he seems like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal, right? It's like, you never did anything good for me, Dad. That, that guy's a loser. And certainly the law said, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You know, Abishai is the same guy that went with David down into Saul's camp the second time. Listen to this, 1 Samuel 26, 9. And David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Well, Shimei did. 
He stretched out his hand against the Lord's anointed. So Shimei might have conflicting things here. Wait a second, David, when we were down in Saul's camp, you said, who can raise his hand against the Lord's anointing to be guiltless? But this little weasel raised his hand against you. But see, he's missing his approach to David as he takes this low road of repentance. But David said, verse 22, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? interesting statement. Hold that thought for a few minutes. That you should be adversaries to me today. Shall any man be put to death in Israel? Or shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For, I, for do I not know that today I'm king over Israel? Interesting, isn't it? Maybe David is realizing that he has been shown mercy by God again and again, and rather than not offering mercy like he didn't do to Absalom a few years ago. Maybe he's learning and realizing, I'm going to offer mercy to this guy. Therefore, the king said to Shimei, verse 23, you shall not die. Now, if you've read ahead, if you've read ahead, I'm going to say this. You shall not die today by my hand if you read ahead. <laughs> because David's not going to kill him. And the king swore to him, I'm not going to kill you. Of course, I have a son coming and he's not going to kill you either because he's going to hold my promise. However, he's going to set something before you. And if you break it, he's going to tell you you're going to die. Okay, so you go looking for it. You'll find it. Now, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. Okay, remember Mephibosheth? Lay him in his feet. Ziba said he was, Mephibosheth stayed behind because he wanted to become king. Total lie. Total lie. And we're going to see a good picture of why it was. Now, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet. What does that mean? No. No, uh, yeah, what else? No pedicure, nor trimmed his mustache, no barbershops, nor washed his clothes. He was looking a little rough and probably a lot stinky. From the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. So do you see what presidents and judges must go through? I mean, here comes another mess. Someone has to try and sort it out and figure out what's right and what's wrong. I don't want, I'm glad that's not me. <laughs> Last week, Mephibosheth's servant Ziba came and threw, threw Mephibosheth under the bus and said, hey, he's trying to take over. Totally bogus though, I believe. And so here comes Mephibosheth. In other words, here comes the other side of the story because it's, there's always his side her side and the truth. It's always that way. That way, I'll never. That way, I don't do any marital anything without both sides there, because it's always tainted and slanted. Verse twenty-five. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said to him, "Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Uh, David, he's a lame. He can't walk." And he answered, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. That would be the servant Ziba, my opinion, the snake. For your servant said, I, okay, so Ziba said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. Okay. Ziba said, I'm going to saddle a donkey for you, Mephibosheth. So he goes out, Ziba goes out, at least according to Mephibosheth, he goes out and saddles the donkey, but then he takes off. And he slanted your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before the lord 
the king is like, or be, for all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king, yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, and this is Mephibosheth's take on life, because life is not about me. That's what he's telling David. Therefore, it's not about me. It's about my king, and it's what, about what my king wants. Therefore, what right have I, to, have I still to cry out any more to the king? So the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said you and Ziba divide the land. I wouldn't pick that decision, but anyway, I'm not the guy making the decision. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather, let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. So the evidence is out there. You can decide who's lying. David had originally given all the land to Mephibosheth, but when Ziba came with his story about Mephibosheth wanting to be king when he was fleeing, David gave all the land to Ziba. And now here comes Mephibosheth in this made-for-Hollywood movie, and David tells him, okay, just divide it. <laughs> Welcome to life and ministry, and probably presidents and judges, all this crazy stuff. Verse 31, and, and Brazilii, the Gileite, came down from, yeah, I can't pronounce that, and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now, Brazilii was a very aged man, 80 years old. But that's not aged today. That was aged back then. <laughs> and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahon, for he was a very rich man. So he was, remember the supply trains that came to David when David was out there on the run? This guy was one of them who brought these supplies to David when he was in distress. And the king said to Barzillai, I come across with me, and I'm going to provide for you while you're with me in Jerusalem. You provided for me, hey, come across, let me take care of you and provide for you. But Barzillai said to the king, how long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I'm 80 years old today. Can I discern between the good and the bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? I hope I can at 80. I don't. <laughs> can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and women? Oh, yeah, you just got to get a hearing aid. They didn't have them back then. <laughs> I guess they had that horn thing in the 1500s. <laughs> Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord the king? All byproducts of the curse from the garden. Can't hear, can't taste, can't decide. Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king, and why should the king repay me with such a reward? I didn't do what I did for a position of wealth, King David. I just did it because that's who I am. Please let your servant turn back again. Let me go. That I might die in my own city, near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Shimon. Let him cross over with, now, Shimon, you're going to want to go do your own homework on. Okay, Acts 17, 11, don't believe anything I tell you about Shimon. But here's your servant, Shimon. Let him cross over with my lord, the king, and do for him what seems good to you. And the king answered, Shimon shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now, little side note here. Don't believe anything I say here. When you look up the definition of Chimam, one, dic one uh, definition reads like this. Apparently David bestowed on him a possession in Bethlehem on which in later times an inn was standing. That's how it reads. Now, could it be that there is a feeding trough close by 
I have no idea. Certainly a question worth, ask, worth, worth asking Shimon when you get to heaven. Hey, um, so did you really have an inn in your town that was in Bethlehem? And did um, anybody special stay in your, in your barn, in your cave? Now, whatever you request of me, I'll do it for you. Then all the people went across the Jordan, went over the Jordan. And when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Brasilia and blessed him. And he returned to his own place. So quite a welcoming party so far, so far, but it's not over yet. Now the king went on to Gilgal and Shimon went on with him. And all the people of Judah escorted the king and also half the people of Israel. Just then all the men of Israel, remember those are the losers. Then just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away? Um, well, first off, I would have said, because they won and you lost. <laughs> you guys were traitors to me, to the cause, and now you're raising this issue. These guys are gutsy, man. Those people up north are pretty gutsy. And they and they brought the king, his household, and all of David's men with him across the Jordan. Well, here's the right answer, because this is where he is living before you all brought the coup. But don't worry, because you'll stir up a coup again if you follow reading through the scriptures, they do it again. So all the men of Judah, the winners, answered the men of Israel, the losers. I just kind of throw that out there to keep everything, you know, it's easy to, you know, just remember the losers were up north, the winners were down south, 10 up north, two down south. So uh, the men of Judah answered the men of Israel because the king is a close relative of ours. Okay, well, that's not very persuasive. Why then are you angry over this matter? That's not very persuasive either. Have we eaten at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? Hmm, childish comes to mind. So the king's on his way back to Jerusalem with all of Judah, which is two tribes in southern Israel. Half of the men of Israel are with him. Everyone seems to be having a good time, smooth sailing as they come across the Jordan, verse 41. But all of the men of Israel, the losers, show up and start whining. That's what they're doing. Now, I do know this. One whiner always begets another whiner, if you listen to him. So now all the men are complaining. And look what they're complaining about. They're complaining that they're not the ones leading the parade. Hey, I thought we got to be, what's that? Is that a grand marshal in a parade? You know, the guy that goes, leads the parade, marshal or whatever. Hey, how come we're not that person? But see, if you leave the whining unchecked in your heart, or unchecked in the hearts of your children, rebellion is just around the corner. It's my parenting tip for the night. You gotta stop it. They're focused on the wrong things. You gotta address it. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king. Yeah, but you're losers. Therefore we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? Yeah, because you guys are traitors. Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer, yeah, because they're buff, than the words of the men of Israel. So not only were their, their words fiercer, they also had to fight to back it up. The men of Judah were better debaters. They probably had a harsher vocabulary, and they definitely had swords to prove it as they start to win the war of words. So Sheba steps up to the plate, and we're introduced to this new character in chapter 20, and says, Enough of this nonsense dealing with these people from Judah. Look what it says here in chapter 20. 
And there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, another snake, the son of Berchai, a Benjamite. Okay, remember where he's from? And he blew a trumpet to get everyone's attention so he could feel important and said, we have no share in David. That's his best lie to spark an uproar. Nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse seeking to bring shame upon a lowly shepherd boy. There wasn't nothing big about Jesse. You know, he, he's just a lowly shepherd boy. Jesse wasn't any big thing. So no inheritance, Mr. Benjamite, because Saul... Your man built a monument to himself and was disobedient to God and got what? He got killed. We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. Yeah, uh, Sheba, you, your, your man was Saul, he's a loser. And now you're trying to get all the northern tribes of Baal. And here's one man. In the midst of everything that's going down, one man. And so Satan throws in a rebel. Why? Well, I firmly believe because he's always continually trying to destroy the family line of David, because through the line of David would come the Messiah. So here he is. I mean, that's why, you know, I'm sure the devil was whispering in Absalom's ear, hey, you know, you could be the king someday. Oh, you know, I could be the king. Oh, no, I probably couldn't. Hey, you could be, well, you know, I probably could make a good king. And that's how he works. He plants those things in there. You know, people complaining in the school or the workplace or the church. It just takes one rebel to light the match and everyone else goes with the flow. And right here, verse 2, the fruit of complaining. So every man of Israel deserted David from one complainer. I'd imagine many people have been fired because the complainer got other people to side with him and the wrong guy got fired. So every man of Israel deserted David. You know, the, the, the ones that wanted... Remember, just the last chapter, these ones wanted back in. Hey, how come we want to we want to be part of the welcoming party? Now all of a sudden they deserted him. Man, talk about living out their feelings. They're like yo-yos here. And they followed Sheba, the son of Berchai, but the men of Judah, because they are loyal... From the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remain loyal to their king. You can kind of see how loyal Israel was to David, can't you? I mean, we can. They weren't. A rebel named Sheba blows his horn and blows off at the mouth, and ten of the twelve tribes leave David to fend for himself. And yet minutes earlier, they are disputing that they should be the ones to lead David home. Fickle, fickle, fickle. It's a great leadership quality in this, that you can tell who the real leaders are when there's opposition. You know, real leaders stand their ground, but people out for themselves, man, they bail just like the ten tribes here. Or you can see who the real Christians are when the persecutions turn up. They hold their ground. When the opposition stands up without a biblical cause, and it will at work or at home, or sadly enough, even in the church, Real leaders stand their ground, but the grumblers always turn and run. And that's what happens here in David's life. True leaders stand their ground and support and don't rebel, don't rebel and run. Verse 3. Now David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, who he had left to keep the house, and put them in seclusion and supported them, paid for them, took care of them. 
but did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. Why? Because of Absalom raping all ten of them. Because they weren't his to have sex with in the first place. As his sin now bleeds on others, so these women are going to live in seclusion for the rest of their lives. Because, see, one man's sin can always affect others. And the king said to Amasa, assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. Okay, pretty straightforward, isn't it? Verse 4, nothing real complicated there. Hey, get all the men of Judah. You know, this is the guy that the King David said, look, I want, you're going to take the place of Joab. Go get everybody, all the men of Judah together within three days. Be present here with yourself. Pretty straightforward. Amasa was another one of Joab's cousins that was the commander of the army when Absalom was seeking to take over his father's throne. And I think maybe David was going to give Amasa the benefit of the doubt here and kind of just let him see if he would do what he was asked to be doing. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. So what should he have done? If it was taking longer than three days. A good leader checks in with his boss often. You do. So whether or not the people of Judah didn't want to follow Amasa, or Amasa didn't place much urgency on the king's request, we don't really know. But he should have checked in. Because watch what happens. Verse 6. And David said to Abishai, the man that wanted to take down Shimei, I just remember he wanted to take him down, and David said, no, we're going to show mercy on him. So David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Berchai, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. Seeing that Amasa did not come back when he was supposed to, David calls up Abishai. But this is, what, this is such an interesting choice for David to look to, seeing it seems like he had just rebuked him back in chapter 19. So Abishai's approach might have been wrong or lacking grace and mercy, but I believe in my heart he was totally loyal to the king, and when the king needed something done, he knew who he could call upon. And so faithfulness is a great quality in good leaders, even if they're a little rough around the edges. You start something, you see it through. You're dependable, working in the vineyard without complaining. So Joab's man with the Cherethites, the Pelethites and all the mighty men, the entire SEAL team strike force are going out, went out after him. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Berchai. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. I think he wants to be part of the team. Now, Joab was dressed in battle armor. Yeah, because they're going out to take out Sheba. On it was a belt with a sword. Notice what it says. Fastened. I add, I, I believe, on his right side in its sheath and at his hips. And he, as he was going forward towards Amasa, it fell out, it literally fell to the ground. Then Joab said to Amasa, are you in health, my brother? Yeah, not for long. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. A totally friendly cultural thing to do back then. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. Could that have been his left hand? I don't know. Nobody wants to address it. And he struck him, but everyone addressed that it fell to the ground. And he, so he could be dragging it. I don't know. I think it fell to the ground. It doesn't really matter. What matters is Joab takes out innocent blood again. And he struck him with it in the stomach and his entrails, also known as his guts, poured out on the ground. 
and he did not strike him again, thus he died, well, eventually. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Berchai. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. In other words, who are you loyal to? But it should have been follow Abishai, because he's the one that David told, hey, get out there and be in charge. Verse 12. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway, so he wasn't quite dead. And when the men saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from, the, we don't know who that he is, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came up upon him halted there, slowing up the battle plan. When he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Berchai. So the distractions all removed. And he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Makkah and all the Berites. So they were gathered together and also went up after Sheba. So it's kind of like a Ben Laden mission here. They're tracking him down. They're looking everywhere. Then they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. And they cast up a siege mount against the city. You know, they start pile up stuff and make it taller and taller and taller. And they stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. So they've, they've got Sheba GPS located. They've got him pinned down. It's only a matter of time before the wall of the city falls. So they can rush in and they'll get their man. But in the process, they're going to destroy everyone in the city for harboring this this traitor to the king. However, this town is not loyal to Sheba. So you need to be careful where you're running when you're running outside the will of God because they may appear friendly, but chances are they may not be. So Sheba picked the wrong town to hide in here. Then a wise woman cried out from the city. Doesn't sound like she's on a wall or anything. Hear, hear, please say to Joab. So, you know, here's some woman. And so it's working its way back. Please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak with you. And so it works its way back. They stop, hey, quick, stop banging on the wall here. So when he had come near to her, the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, hear the words of your maidservant. I mean, as, you, as we go through this whole made for Hollywood movie, you got to really step into this whole thing. You know, and so, you know, here here you got a woman on one side of the wall and you got Joab, the commander, they, you know, no doubt he's sweating, you know, in there trying to knock the wall down just like everybody else. And he answered, here I am. Then she said to him, hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. So she spoke saying, they used to talk in former times saying they shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, Far be it, for far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Berchai by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, watch, for heads are going to roll. His head will be thrown to you over the wall. So he kind of brings a whole new meaning to the word head hunting. I mean, then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people. They cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Berchai, and threw it out to Joab. Then Joab blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. 
And so it was chop, chop, suey here. Oh, no, it's chop, chop, Sheba. Okay, sorry. And Joab was over all the army of Israel. Why was he? Because <laughs> he always eliminates the competition. <laughs> uh, Benaniah, the son of Joahadiah. Okay, there's a reason why this is here right here, okay? I really believe there is. And Joab was over all the army of Israel. Benaniah, the son of Jehadiah, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Elhud, was recorder. Sheba was a scribe. Zadak and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, the Jerite, was the chief minister under David. So we get another introduction to David's cabinet because no one can do it or go it alone if you're going to be successful. It's not going to happen. One more chapter. We're going to blow through this. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Okay? Please take notice of that. Three years. So year after year. But why does David wait three years? Well, they've had famines before. Year one. Well, that's okay. Well, now we're at year two. And David must be thinking, this is unusual. There must be something wrong. You know, three years in a row. And David, the man after God's own heart, inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. That's why there's been a three-year famine. Now, here's the crazy thing. There's no record in the scriptures of Saul killing them. It's not recorded. But see, that makes sense to me because the Gibeonites, again, have nothing to do with the coming of the Messiah. You know, Jacob and Esau are born. You ever read much about Esau? No, only when he's faking repentance in Hebrews. But, he, you know, he lists his genealogy and he falls out of the way. Why? Because God's not interested, interested in him. He's only interested in those who are going to bring about his Messiah. And so there's no record of any of this here. And remember the Gibeonites? When Israel had crossed in the promised land just after Charleston Heston had died, a.k.a. Moses, remember that? They, remember the first thing they did? They defeated what? They, they defeated what? Starts with a J. As they crossed across the Jordan River, they defeated who? Jericho. And then they didn't, they didn't inquire of God. They went and defeated AI. Nope, they got beat down and they're going, hey, God, how come? It's like, well, you got sin in your camp and you never talked to me. So then they defeated AI. And then a group of people came to them. Remember they said there from a far away, look, look at our worn out shoes. We got moldy bread. We've come so far. So far. We got holes in our, in our clothes. Our wine skins are cracked. Man, there's no wine in them anymore. We've heard of your fame. We've come from a far country. Everybody remember them? Well, Joshua and the leaders surveyed the condition of the people and their staff, but they never inquired of the Lord as to direction. Even though God had told them, don't make a covenant with anybody close by, these guys were their neighbors. And so they make this covenant because they never ask God. And then they have to protect them. Enemies are going to attack them. Nope. They made this covenant. They got to go protect them. And then they made them their servants. But I guess better to be a live servant than dead was their thought. Well, somewhere Saul went and killed most of them. Not all, because David's going to communicate with them. I'm sure Saul tried to kill all of them, but you know what? We all know that was Saul's problem, wasn't it? He couldn't kill all the Amalekites when God told him to. 
So the king, verse 2, called the Gibeonites, that's who we're talking about here, and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, the children of Israel had sworn protection to them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David, not as a king demanding, I think it's really important we see this, but as a fellow Jew, because he, he's a peacemaker here, but as a fellow Jew that made the covenant with them, because all, all of Israel made this covenant with the Gibeonites when they made it with when Joshua made it with them. He doesn't come as a king, he comes as a fellow Jew, maybe a servant. He said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And it sounds like a servant. And with what shall I make atonement for Saul's sin that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? What do we have to do to make things right? Just tell me, let us know. Now, as we look at this, let, it, let me remind us that God takes covenants that the Israelites made with the people of Gibeon very seriously. Okay, that's why they have a famine. Because there was a covenant made and, and Israel broke it. And if he's that way towards them, then we can be sure he's that way towards us when he promises to never leave us or, or forsake us. He's not going to break that covenant. You know, when, when the water's thrashing, when the chasm's wide, we can be confident that he's never going to leave us or fail us because he's on record that way. And so the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul. We're not in it for the money or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. We don't have nothing against the nation of Israel. So he said, whatever you say, I'll do it for you. Then they answered the king, as for the man, that would be Saul, who consumed us and plotted against us, tried to take them all out, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel. We only want to deal with him. Of course, he's dead. But let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them, watch this, before the Lord. In Gibeah of Saul. See, these people have been living in the land of Israel for a long time. You give us seven, we'll hang them before the Lord as the Lord brings famine and is going to approve of their actions here. So you bring them whom the Lord choose, and the king said, I will give them. So the fix to the famine was seven descendants of Saul hung, seeking to take away the curse from the land. Verse 7, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that he made between them. I mean, if he would have delivered up Mephibosheth, he would have broke a covenant to keep a covenant. So there's a lot of wisdom there uh, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth. Uh, Mep uh, wait a second. That's, wrong. That's a different Mephibosheth. So the king took Ammonai and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, 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 whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom the, she brought up for Adriel, the son of the Brazili, the Mahonai. And, and he delivered them into the... Hey, no way. My tongues don't even work like that. In the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord as an act of judgment to satisfy the blood that Saul had spilled on the ground. You know, as we go through the book of Revelation, God's going to turn the fresh water into blood because of all the blood that this world has shed in shedding innocent people. You think about the, all the babies that are aborted, 50 million in America, who knows how many bazillion across the world. And then innocent people dying. And Christians. 
But God's going to God's going to give him. Hey, look, this is what you did. I'm going to give it back to you. And so Saul did this. God's giving it back to him. And so they put him to death in the days of the harvest, in the final days, in the beginning of barley harvest. The barley harvest always took place first, usually around first part of April, sometimes the end of March during the rainy season. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, who has a couple of children hanging here, took sackcloth and spread it up for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the later rains poured on them from heaven, singling to us an end of the famine. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by, day, by night. So these bodies are hanging up there and they're just rotting away, slowly decaying. And she watched over these bodies for months. But, you know, that's, that's a mom for you. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the, the concubine of Saul, had done. And David, as we let the word of God speak for himself, the king did this. He went out and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them away from the street of Beshan, where the Philistines had hung them up. Remember, uh, when Saul died, they took his body and, and went and hung it up there. And then... then uh, uh, Jabesh Gilead came and took him back. Well, David's collecting all these bones. And the, uh, so he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. And they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. He's going to give them a proper burial. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and, and Selah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. Kind of sounds like others did, but David's directing the affairs. He's right in there as well as participating. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So God delivered him from the famine. Because somebody had to pay. Sin always requires something. Someone always has to pay. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines. And David grew faint. Because all men of God eventually grow faint. I'm more faint now than when I was 21. And when you grow faint, you need others around you. Then Ishbi Benob, I wouldn't name my kid that, but who was one of the sons of the giant, who's that? Goliath. Call this stone number two. The weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David, but Abishai. Remember that one that got rebuked, got sent out? And now here he is. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, who was rough around the ages, but loyal to his king to the max, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. You know, no wonder why he's one of the king's mighty men. When David's strength failed, God provided others to strengthen his hands. And we all need that at times. And please take notice of who rescues him. I mean, there's a battle going on. So while everyone's killing their enemies, the same faithful guy David looked to to go after Sheba, he's got one eye on the king and he's got one eye on the guy he's, that he's chopping down. He's got a heart that's faithful to the call. Then the men of David swore to him, time to retire, king, saying, you shall go out no more with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. David, you're too old to go out and fight. It's time for you to hang up the sword. But God wants... All of us to know, this is really critical from verse 18 down. God wants all of us to know that when David hung up the sword, he left the nation in a really great shape. Look what it says there. 
Now it happened afterwards, when David hung up the sword. There was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob, so he's no longer leading the battle. Remember every time David didn't lead the battle, what happened? Yeah, they had trouble. They didn't win. Okay, so David's hung up his sword now because God's, you know, God's saying, yep, you're done. Hang it up. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then, yeah, that guy, that guy killed that guy who was one of the one of the sons of the who? Who's that? Goliath. Call that stone number three. Again, there is war at Gob with the Philistines, where Helahan, the son of yep, that guy, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Call that stone number four. Yet again, there is war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot. He had 24 digits in numbers. And he also was born to the, who? Goliath, stone number five. So when he had defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. David took out the dad. His servants took out the sons. Interesting, isn't it? David poured his life into these men, and these men are now taking it forward, and they took out his sons. Remember when David goes to t take on Goliath, how many stones does he take? He takes five. The Bible's very clear. It doesn't say he reached down and gets a pocket full. It says he takes five. So could it be that David thought that when he killed Goliath that his four sons were going to charge him? I don't know, but I'll tell you what. It's one of those questions I'm going to ask David when I get to heaven. <laughs> hey, why five? Why not six? Well, because there was only four sons. <laughs> Father, we are thankful that you show us pictures of the goodness of who you are for us. And all that you desire to do as we walk with you because of what your son did for us on the cross. And so, Lord, we're thankful. Lord, that someone had to pay for our sin. We're thankful that it was Jesus who suffered and died in our place, that our that we could have a relationship with you based on somebody else's actions. Lord, thank you for calling us as your children, for adopting us into your family, for, for loving us. And so, Lord, help us to be like David and just be able to rest in you. Yeah, we're going to make mistakes. But in spite of the mistakes, be able to run to you seeking forgiveness and being able to look to you when, when there's battles and chasms that are far too wide. And we just can't figure out how to get to the other side. Lord, help us to use the relationship that you've offered to us when we turn to you and allow Jesus to be the Lord of our life. Lord, help us to use that and put it into practice that we would be men and women who would shine like the noonday sun out in a world who is so lost and so dark and so lost the way that they might see our good works and ask what it is about us, that we might be able to tell them about the love of Jesus. So Lord, bless and accomplish your purposes in us and through us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name.